Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So I am on the northbound Northern Line platform at Bank Station because I am going to have an adventure. I'm going to go to Edgware with a man who, who also recently went to Edgware. We'll get into that shortly. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Samir Jaraj and I'm a journalist, charity worker and housing person, campaigner maybe. And that is the train number 013 to Edgware, which we are going to, which we're going to get onto now. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, I'm John Elledge, and this is Skyline's The Silly Metric Podcast. As you'll just have heard, this is going to be a sort of on-location episode. We start by trying to record on tube. It does not, it does not go as well as, as well as I expected. So don't worry if you're, if you're getting annoyed by the tube background noises. After a couple of minutes, we give up on that and move to a cafe where occasionally I fear in the background you can hear the noise of the bloody espresso machine. In keeping with that theme, in this opening, which I recorded purely to, to reassure people the sound quality would improve, I'm sat outside in the uh, Angel Islington shopping centre where all you can hear is drilling. Some days it's just... You just want to give up, don't you? Anyway, stick with us. There's an excellent anecdote about, about the reason why we tried to record this on the tube, followed by a nice discussion about, about rent controls and the like, and the trap that the British rental system has, has a large chunk of the population currently caught in. So stick with us. It is worth bearing with the noise, I promise. So, okay, we're on the, on the train now. Everyone else on the train is studiously avoiding the weirdos recording a podcast, as is right and proper. So the first question is, you don't live in Edgware, right? No, no, no. I live in, well, I live in Hackney and I work in Kentish Town in Camden. So why exactly did you go to Edgware? So I was going to a meeting in, around like um, Angel about um, the launch of the Mayor of London's report on rent control. And because uh, I hadn't read the email properly, I tried to go to City Hall and near like London Bridge, and then realised I had to quickly get on the Northern Line and get get up to Angel. So then, when I got to Bank, I realised that the doors had closed in on my bag straps, and I couldn't get my bag out the door. Okay, but that's that's fine. You just get it out the next station, right? Yeah. So 
I kind of realised that things were starting to, to, to go wrong once we'd kind of like gone way past Angel and were, were up into like King's Cross used to kind of area and then when we got to kind of Collindale and we got actually out of the underground I realised that the doors the were just weren't going to be opening on that side again. Change here for Circle, Hammersmith City and Metropolitan Line and National Rail Services. And the announcer was no help. <laughs> I was just going to say like there are going to be moments where we just have to stop for the announcer and there's not really a way around. This is, try and think of this as less as a, less as a podcast more as a stupid experience you're having. So you're trapped in the doors at any point did you start to panic i think like initially because i realized that, that this meeting i was already kind of late to i was gonna be even later to it and then i was kind of like the uh, no i'm not gonna we're just sitting down okay so you're like oh no i'm not, not gonna be able to make this make this meeting and it's like you know like eventually this, the door's gonna open on on their side and it was kind of frustrating but were you definitely sure about that like is it not possible that due to some quirk of fate you could have just been trapped in the door indefinitely it was possible i i figured if i got to like edgeware and, and nothing had happened at that point I, I would then like seek help but I, I kind of felt the need to like abide by both that kind of like maybe it's that male thing of not asking for help or that London thing of not asking anyone for help on the tube yeah that is kind of the ultimate faux pas is to is to actually speak to another human being on the tube which is why people are starting to give us slightly strange looks now the northern line is slightly screechier than I was imagining it might be when we agreed to do this but you know style it out we know what you're getting into I should also say, for the benefit of any, anyone who doesn't live in London or isn't intimately familiar with the tube map, Edgware is the end of the line. It's a long way out. Yeah, so it's up in the like northwest London, total end of the line. It's leafy, like lots of suburban housing. I've, I've got some family that live there. You can have to like, go there maybe like once a year for a family thing. Well, that's nice. Did you say hi? No, I, I, I didn't get a chance. I was kind of like, I, I was like panicked enough that I felt the need to kind of return immediately. I have a terrible confession at this point in the podcast. I am slightly worried that this is going to be completely unlistenable. So while the original plan was to go all the way to Edgware, I'm going to make a radical suggestion, which is we find a cafe in which to talk about housing. What do you reckon? Sounds good. So now in a cafe in, uh, in the Angel Islington area of inner North London, which was by my stomping ground till I moved to the East End last year. As we've got close to doing this podcast we've got progressively wussier about it like the original plan was to try and reenact the whole affair by deliberately getting trapped in in the doors and then being stuck there to edgeware while recording a podcast because that seemed like a funny thing to do on social media but i think by the time we actually sort of met up this morning we were both thinking that maybe that was in fact a bad idea and that you know we would be sending the wrong message and possibly bringing the entire london underground network grinding to a halt so now here we are in this in this cafe there was a moment we did a sound check where it was slightly worse than recording on the tube but we're hoping this is going to work fine let's let's get into the actual meat of this conversation among other things you're the co-author of a book called the rent trap yes tell us about that so the rent trap is a a book about how we kind of got into this kind of renting crisis and some of the potential routes out of it so kind of looking at how private rented housing has become a much bigger part of housing both for young people and for poorer people and why kind of the routes out either into like social housing or into own occupation have been closed off over the last few years and what that's what that means socially what that means politically and economically as well okay well let's start with with the sort of first principles there 
why are so many more people? Oh, this is this is like one of those questions with a really obvious answer, but it's good to spell it out sometimes. Why are so many more people renting now than did thirty years ago? Why don't they all just go and buy their own home? Well, I mean, there's a, a few different things to that. So, like, firstly, there are proportionally less housing. So there's you know, like social housing collapsed basically in the '80s under the impact of right to buy and of kind of financial restrictions placed on councils that stopped them um, building housing. Then under New Labour, there was a lot of emphasis placed on councils outsourcing social housing to housing associations who'd never been able to build as much housing as councils were. Is that just a capacity thing? Because the average housing association is, or at least was, smaller and has fewer staff than a, the average council? Nowadays, in my opinion, no, but it's, it's because you know, councils had that strategic role of being able to kind of do work with land to actually do things on a much larger, grander, more strategic scale, whereas housing associations traditionally were small and specialist organisations that focused on a particular clientele. And their, their criticism of, of councils was, you are too big and monolithic to, to serve a particular community, whether that's a, a national community. So, for example, there are lots of black housing associations or whether that's about like people with uh, mental health issues, learning disability. Whereas now, housing associations, the ones with tens of thousands of homes across multiple parts of the country, and are actually increasingly becoming the kind of monolithic base of uh, of housing. This is why I stopped halfway through my questions because once upon a time they were relatively small organisations, where now some of them are managing as many homes as a lot of the councils ever did, right? Yeah. But but the difference is they have neither the sort of control over planning powers nor the kind of statutory duty to house people in the same way. So they have a sort of different they have different abilities and different incentives as well, I guess. Exactly. It used to be, for example, councils used to give land over to housing associations in exchange for being able to to nominate who could who could live there. So they would house people off the off the housing list. And similarly, you know, the um, housing association used to be receive subsidy and grant from central government because building social housing was deemed to be a good thing by central government at the time. Whereas that has collapsed as well. So housing associations are being encouraged to sweat their assets, essentially to become more commercial organisations, which is why you, you see several housing associations move more towards providing more generic, what they call general needs housing and focusing on things like shared ownership rather than specialised housing and, and focusing specifically on on groups of people that have like higher needs. We've already got slightly off our, our original track here, it tends to happen when I, I talk to anyone about housing. But to kind of go back a bit, so one of the reasons that, that rent, private renting is through the roof is because there's much less social housing around. Presumably property prices are also in the mix here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so one of the reasons why people can't escape into owner occupation is that house prices are significantly higher and the kind of like deposits on them are in particular are kind of prohibitively expensive to private renters who don't really have the capacity to um, to build up savings. So so one of the stats in, in the in the rent trap, but it might it might not be the kind of current one was that like private renters would struggle to save like 150 pounds a month towards towards the deposits so because, because rent is higher the cost of living is higher wages haven't gone up for 10 years really exactly and then on top of 
that again, like in as one of the effects of quite renting expanding in the kind of the buy to let style kind of situation is you've got had the growth of letting agencies who predominantly fund themselves through letting agency fees. But letting agency fees now thankfully banned, but in that that era they were a way for letting agents essentially to charge large amounts of money, mostly to private renters and and sometimes to, to landlords. And yeah, this is kind of why it's been one of the easier problems to solve is because they were stiffing both tenants and landlords, right? So and it's much easier to say these people are just parasites and not have a third of the House of Commons think, well, hang on, that's also me. Yeah, uh, absolutely. There was the, the, like, the, the one group of people that both landlords and, and tenants actually like, both hated was legends agents because they both felt that they were being screwed over. And then there were lots of examples of overcharging that term was brought out. I mean, there are also kind of like examples of the BBC did an investigation a few years back in London where there was examples of letting agencies racially discriminating against tenants where they were perfectly happy to accept landlord instructions to not house African-Caribbean people. And they were really kind of like the unaccountable face of, 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 of housing. They, you know, cause there were lots of ways that they could, could defraud people or could screw people over. So, okay, we, we kind of talked a bit about why the private rental sector has grown so much in the last generation in Britain. Is that necessarily a bad thing? One of the things you hear a lot in this debate is, well, why are we so obsessed in home ownership? Like in Germany, people rent for their whole life. What's wrong with doing that? What is wrong with just renting? Innately, there's nothing wrong with just renting. It's the, it's the, the quality of what, of, of, that, of what that renting is. Um, renting in the, in the UK currently means insecurity it's because you can be evicted without reason under section 21 of the of the 1988 housing act it's unregulated in terms of rents that can be charged as well which is one of the reasons why we talk about rent control and also like in terms of condition of um, private rented housing stock it's traditionally been much lower quality housing much more likely to be overcrowded much more like to be at the crap end of housing mm. so you know there's nothing innately wrong in renting as long as that's your choice and it's a decent place to live so it's not renting itself that's the problem it's so much as the insecurity that comes with renting in the british system particularly exactly and and that insecurity un- underpins so much of kind of the issues because it's it's about the power dynamic between landlord and tenant and so for example my co-author of the, of the book, Rosie, she was evicted for asking her landlord to replace a broken set of drawers. And it, it's just like kind of like... That's mental. Even if you don't want to replace the drawers, why can you not just say no? Why do you have to be like, well, no, not only am I not going to do it, I'm going to throw you out, I don't want your money anymore. Like, what was the logic there? So from what I remember, he said something in the lines of, of like, I don't like women who talk back. Charming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so you know, like, uh, I, I would, if I was ascribing a rationality to it, I would imagine that this particular guy saw, oh, here's someone who's, who's willing to stand up to me, they're going to be trouble, I can quite easily find someone who will, who will pay, pay the same amount of money or more for this room. And because it's essentially a seller's market, because it, particularly in cities like London, there are so many people fighting over so few flats, which is why rents are so high, landlords think they can just kick someone else, someone out and get someone in probably at a higher rent. That's not, actually, as I understand it, that's not necessarily true. And rents have been flatlining or even slipping a bit 
but that's still the impression a lot of people have, right? Yeah, 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 very much. People are kind of used to that scenario of having no power or no market power and not feeling able to to ask their, their their landlord for repairs or for any kind of improvement even if they might actually kind of like be, be up for it i mean like i remember one one potential landlord of mine didn't actually kind of end up going over a friend lived there he was he was fine fine and good like a like like decent person who seemed to be kind of like wanting the people living in in this place to be to, you know, to, to be okay but he decided to give management over to some lettings agent that was that was very much of the school of um, no, we won't do that, or oh, we're going to ask the landlord about that and, and never getting back to them. So yeah, I often get the impression it's not the highest quality people who end up in the in the lettings agent business. Please mind the gap between the train and the platform. When you're ready to pop the question. The last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So what's the solution? Like, you've, you've, you've thought about this more than almost anyone else. How will we fix this? How are you going to fix this for us? So for me, and I think kind of in the, the book as well, it was this combination of progressive legislation and regulation. So, for example, banning no-fault evictions, rent control, banning less agency fees making landlords accountable through a through licensing in the same way that like a taxi driver would is licensed and is accountable for their actions and on the other side an active renters movement to enforce those those rights and to to establish collective collective power in a way that individual renters don't have okay so i want to unpack a couple of those a lot of those are fairly straightforward like a licensing scheme for landlords seems quite sensible because it is kind of ridiculous you can be responsible for someone's home life and be completely invisible to the authorities if you if you abuse that power mm-hmm. banning lettings agency fees have already covered let's talk about rent controls so i'm going to slightly play devil's advocate here because i really don't like i don't like this conclusion i want to believe that rent controls can fix things but 
from what I've read, one of the few things you can get economists from the left and the right to agree on is that rent controls are bad because they will kind of create an insiders-outsiders thing where like people who have rent-controlled apartments stay with them forever, but there's suddenly a shortage of, of rental property, so people who don't have those can't get anything at all, so end up renting even more expensive or more unofficial things if they can. Um, it enables landlords to play tenants off against each other. There are other ways in which they can kind of like force tenants to, to differentiate themselves other than other than simple financial ones. And these are arguments put forward not just by people on the right, but by like Paul Krugman, who's a sort of left-leaning economist who writes in the New York Times. Why is that wrong? Because I really want to believe that we can just set rent controls and sort this out. So one of the, the issues behind that is that people often kind of like talk about rent control or invoke rent control. And actually, rent control is a, is a broad set of different, different types of systems. So the kind of like the, the New York system is very, is very different from the Danish system or the, the Venezuelan system. And that actually kind of like we, we can think about what we want to do with, with a rent control system, then design it around that. So I believe at the, very, at the very least that you can establish a system of rent control that at the very least mitigates to a significantly less level the kind of the, the bad impacts and... And tell us a bit about the different forms of rent control. Like, what are the things you can change with it? So, for example, like the, perhaps the, the weakest form of rent control would be limiting rent increases during a tenancy. So, you have like a shelter, I think, have talked about this, and, and Labour under Ed Miliband talked about this. So you'd have like a five year tenancy, and you, the landlords would be limited to, to like inflation level increases during that time. But then once the once your tenancy came to an end, they could then set a new rent at whatever level they they want to. Whereas, for example, the Danish system is based far more on basically limiting the amount of profit a landlord can can make. So you take the cost of building a building a block of flats or building a home, and you can charge a percent a certain percentage of that to the tenant per year. So you can charge like five percent of the of the the value of the of the cost of, constru- of construction over that year. So that means that's a twenty-year payback. There's some kind of like leeway around around improvements around kind of whatever. So, but that, that is a, a much longer-term thing, and that's based on here is you, you're going to be able to make this amount like a reasonable amount of profit mm-hmm. on this, but not be able to to double a rent for no particular reason. So the, the point is it's not as simple as like, it doesn't have to be as simple as saying, right, this is the rent and that is it. There are ways of kind of connecting it to landlord's costs or general inflation. Yeah. Or just so it kind of looks a bit more like, you know, a reasonable share of someone's living costs rather than something that can suddenly spike 50% without warning. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it, interestingly, kind of the, the first type of rent control in the UK introduced in 1915, was was a flat rent freeze. The rents were frozen at pre-war levels because there was a essentially like a an economic crisis brought about by by the fact that the UK was at war and that um, landlords decided to to raise their rents. Mm, sure, but presumably that was also made easier by the fact that there must have been slightly fewer people around once you get into a war and like you know a measurable percentage of the population is in a ditch in France somewhere. 
So interestingly, mm. like the, the place that was the the real kind of like center of, of rent control, like or like fight for rent control, was uh, Glasgow. And what had happened was that all of these workers from elsewhere in Scotland moved to um, to Glasgow to work in munitions factories. So there was a, there was short term higher pressure on mm. on housing in in Glasgow, and so rents were raised. And then when when people couldn't uh, couldn't pay them, they were summarily evicted. And there were all these kind of like these campaigns, especially there were kind of families of people who were fighting in uh, in France or, or wherever, and they were being evicted. And there was kind of this very much a thing of like this landlord is evicting people. But one of the things that really um, put pressure on the government was that um, this rent control, this rent strike that um, that happened in Glasgow threatened to become an industrial strike within the munitions factories and shipyards in Glasgow and so they quickly passed this kind of rent restriction act. Well this this gets us on to the other thing I kind of wanted to talk about that you, you sort of listed in your you know ways of dealing with the rental crisis is the idea of building kind of a rental movement. So you're you're a trustee of, of Generation Rent which you know regularly the City Metro will probably be aware of as a, a campaign to kind of improve the lot of renters basically do you think this is a form of the civil society that we we sh- will be seeing more of, like you know, renters banding together to exert political pressure as a group? Yeah, I very I think so because you know this like on, ongoing issue of private rented housing being a much larger part of um, of like housing stock in the UK means there will be much more renters for a longer time, and that actually having some type, type of like collective protection and, and form of lobbying is only seems to make sense within that. That actually kind of thinking about some of the ways of civil society organizations that are about kind of people living more precarious lives, whether that whether that's kind of like forms of trade unionism that are kind of working with people on on insecure contracts. But actually kind of these people living within insecure housing and people who are able to come together and campaign for that and you, you see kind of examples of renters unions for example in the United States in Germany so what does a renters union actually do because you know you talk about a trade union you sort of imagine it's sort of involved in pay negotiations orchestrating strikes so that the workforce can, can uh, exert its its sort of combined influence what does a renters union do so it, it can do a number of things, and again, it depends on what the the system that you're dealing with is. So, in like in the in the US, like a tenants union will do a lot of like legal advocacy, representing members and tenants' interests within like the courts. It will like they will lobby for legislation, or especially within the US, like city legislation. In the UK, we, we we've only relatively recently had the kind of start of the London Renters Union and Living Rent, which is the tenants union in Scotland, and they they're they're doing political lobbying to an extent. They're doing they're doing a lot of of what if, if I can remember the term correctly is kind of like like action casework. So so where like a member is, for example, under threat of eviction and trying to find ways to either block that or using kind of strength of numbers against a landlord lettings agent that's not necessarily dealt with that before. They're used to dealing with people who don't have any power. So, for example, like a while back, I actually did, did an article for New Statesman on, uh, on evictions. And as part of that, I went to eviction court. I mean, there isn't a defined eviction court in the UK, but 
I went to um, the court where eviction decided and most private renters don't turn up because they have so little basis they can actually appeal an eviction on but whereas a renters union can essentially make life difficult for for a landlord or lettings agent they can pick a, a lettings agent they can use that collective power to try and force some form of negotiation even mm. if there isn't a kind of a legal structured process to do that it's not just about having the legal rights it's about your ability to actually enforce those rights mm. basically and as it stands a lot of tenants they tend to be younger poorer in less secure work yeah. they can't necessarily show up at a court in the middle of the day with a lawyer saying okay here's here's our line exactly that case so if you look at kind of how the how the scottish tenants union started it literally started with this particular unpleasant landlord called, called Mark Fortune, let's talk, let's talk like who was predominantly like a student landlord in Edinburgh and he was just like this really kind of quite horrible landlord and, and eventually one of his tenants, a guy called Jamie Finn, complained about something and he, and he turned up at his, at his door and, he, and, and threatened, to, threatened to shoot him. And it, it wasn't even that I'd done in the kind of like the I'm going to shoot you, it's like oh I've got mates who had, who had done for shooting someone. Yeah, so Jamie recorded this this conversation, and and it was became the basis of a legal case against Mark Fortune, who then countersued Jamie, and then all these other tenants of of this guy kind of joined in, and eventually they they won a significant part of their case. He was under Scottish law, you can be deemed to be a, not a fit and proper person to be a landlord, so his ability to be a landlord was taken off him. He tra- he transferred the, the company to someone else and then fled the country. But anyhow, so it was this group of group of people that came together uh, against this actual landlord who then formed the Edinburgh Private Tenant Action Group and who then formed the basis of the Living Rent Tenants Union in, in Scotland. But this, this, this actual kind of thing of, of like, people weren't lining up at the door to, um, to take their case to against this, this guy. They very much had to do it themselves and force people kind of on board. And... Like similar, if you look at at the ability and willingness of councils to enforce against landlords, um, it's patchy at best. A lot of councils don't invest in in that kind of enforcement. A lot of housing enforcement falls to environmental health officers rather than people who are kind of specialists, like tenancy people. And, and council expertise has been gutted over decades, right? It's mean, even before austerity, they were losing a lot of these people just because the councils have repeatedly faced budget cuts and so on. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And then, um, again, like one of the impacts of the, the housing crisis is that councils are struggling to find places to, to house people who, who come to them as homeless. And one of the places that they can house them is with private landlords. So councils can't be seen to be too anti-landlord because they need them to, to house people off, um, off their homelessness lists. I do want to be wrapping up, but just as a last question, like we've obviously seen in, in the Western world as the economy has changed, old school trade unionism has become a, a less powerful force in, in politics and civil society. Do you think like renters unions could be a way of kind of playing that sort of role where like, you know, it's where the less powerful members of society to kind of exert their collective power in a way that perhaps not had an atomized economy the last couple of decades? Absolutely, and so like one of the, I suppose like my, my kind of thought on kind of like organizing is as, as the, the, the collective workplace has become a 
a place that like fewer and fewer of us actually kind of do work in one of the places that we can start to organize on is 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 like a around like our neighborhood or around our ex, our experiences renters even even though that's not without challenges we don't have a single employer um or we have a much more kind of like fragmented landlord class of people but actually it's potentially the basis upon which we can start to organize in that kind of economy that's more about atomized workers it's more about insecure work insecure living well that's a nice positive note to end on there is power in a union so maybe there is hope for the future uh, if anyone wants to get in contact with you what's the best way i'm on twitter um, my handle's at s-a-j-e-r-a-j samir thank you very much thanks you've been listening to skylines the podcast from city metric the new statesman city site it was presented and recorded by me, John Anage, and produced by Nick Hilton. You can find Skylines every two weeks on iTunes, Acast, or whatever other app you use to get your, your podcast. And while you're there, why not leave us a nice review to, to tell other people we're here? It, you know, it really helps people discover the show, and I'm a megalomaniac, so the more people I can get listening to this, the better, really. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.